Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Great St. Mary's, the University Church, and to tonight's hustings. My name is Devin McLaughlin. I'm the associate vicar here at the University Church. My job is simply to say welcome and a couple of housekeeping notes. We've been here for over 800 years. We have welcomed speakers from Queen Elizabeth I to Jeremy Corbyn to Mother Teresa, but not all at the same time, which would have been amazing. But delighted tonight to open up our doors to the Cambridgeshire community for the hustings. In the unlikely event of an emergency, such as a fire or a phone call that the European elections have now been called off again, I'm not expecting that, please depart the way you came into the West, follow the directions of the stewards in the yellow vests there. There's an exit directly to the West, and there's an exit here in the Southwest corner, as well as through the shop in the Northwest corner. So plenty of exits do move calmly. Um, I don't think there are any other notes. Usually when we have groups here, we say, please don't play the pipe organ without permission, but we should be safe from that. Again, very glad to have you here, and thank you to Cambridge Stays for organizing tonight's hustings. I'm now going to hand things over to our moderator, Julian Clover from Cambridge 105. So good evening and uh, welcome for me, Julian Clover, to Great St. Mary's Church and the Cambridge European Election Hustings. It's been organised by Cambridge Stays and the candidates who we'll hear from uh, this evening are for the Brexit Party, Edmund Fordham, Change UK, represented by Neil Carmichael, for the Conservatives, Tom McLaren, for the Greens, Catherine Rowett, uh, the Independent, Attila Sordas, for Labour, Alvin Chum, for the Lib Dems, Lucy Nafsinger, and for UKIP, Stuart Agnew. At the end of our table here, Edmund Fordham uh, for the Brexit Party. Uh, Dr. Fordham took a first in physics at Cambridge and wrote his doctoral thesis on wind energy in the 1980s. He was a scientific advisor to a leading company in the oil and gas industry. After studying the Maastricht Treaty in 1992, he has been consistently opposed to British membership of the EU. Change UK, we have Neil Carmichael. He's a former Conservative Party Member of Parliament. He was MP for the Stroud constituency in Gloucestershire from the 2010 general election to 2017. For the Conservatives, Tom McLaren. Uh, Tom is the Conservative Councillor for Brentwood Borough Council and number four on the Conservative Party list for the Eastern Region. For the Greens, Catherine Rowett. Catherine is Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia. She is known in particular for her work on Greek philosophy, especially the pre-Socratic philosophers. The independent Attila Sordas runs a company called Age Curve that wants to address the problem of ageing and the corresponding healthy lifespan extension. He has been a stem cell researcher and has a degree in philosophy, so he may or may not agree with Catherine, I guess. For Labour, Alvin Shum. Alvin sits on the executive committee of Chinese for Labour. He's also an activist and election agent within the Cambridge Labour Party. For the Liberal Democrats, Lucy Nethsinger. Uh, she is the Lib Dem prospective parliamentary candidate for South East Cambridgeshire and the Lib Dem leader on Cambridgeshire County Council. And uh, finally, from UKIP, Stuart Agnew. Stuart is a British farmer and politician, serving already as a member of the European Parliament for the East of England region, which has done so since 2009. 
Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Now, let me explain how all this is going to work tonight with a series of questions which will hopefully enable the candidates to explain their policies and views to you. Uh, the candidates have a minute to give their answer. I know it doesn't sound long, but you'll appreciate if you want to get through as many questions as possible. Maybe a supplementary after, after that, so another 30 seconds is added. I'm, I may be generous from time to time, depends how the mood takes me, really. Then it's over to you uh, to ask questions. We'll have two microphones at either side of the room, so uh, raise your hands clearly, and uh, somebody will hopefully come to you, and you'll be able to put uh, your question. Um, if you can, try and keep the questions on topic. We'll try and have a section at the end when we can mop up any questions and answers uh, which we haven't otherwise been able to cover. So let's get underway. I'm going to start by asking each of the candidates to make their pitch to you, if you like, as to why you should vote for them. And uh, they have a minute in which to do so. And I'm going to ask the first of our candidates, Edwin Forden, from the Brexit Party, to uh, give his statement first. Okay, thank you very much, Julian, for the introduction. Position of the Brexit Party in these elections is very simple. We stand for delivery upon the result of the largest democratic exercise in our political history, namely the referendum instruction of 2016. We stand for an exit from the European Union on WTO terms, which is the trade deal already negotiated. We stand for restoration of faith and confidence in the democratic principle, one of the foundation values of our society, for restoration of trust between the people and their members of parliament after promises made in the general election manifestos of 2017 are repudiated wholesale by both Tory and Labour parties, and a healthy and open debate on all matters of public controversy or concern, all well summarised in our strapline to change politics for good. Done. Thank you, Edmund. Let's move now to Change UK. Neil, Neil Carmichael. Well, good evening. Uh, this election is about our future as a nation. It's about the way in which we want to see this country unfold. Uh, it's also an opportunity to express your desire for a second referendum with Remain as an option. It's about extending peace, not just here, but beyond the world, beyond the rest of the world, because actually the European Union is a force for good. It's about protecting the freedoms that we've actually been arguing about. It's actually about celebrating freedom of movement, because that's something which I know young people in particular uh, really relish. It is about making sure our economy can actually thrive and prosper and continue to do so. Um, and it's also about the way in which we protect our environment and work with our partners to deliver a better, cleaner, more sustainable environment. These are positive reasons why we should remain in the European Union. But you know, the things that emerged during the uh, first referendum of, nine, of 2016 are the ones we should be concerned about now. Whether our schools are delivering the, right for our, the best for our children, whether or not our people are actually um, uh, being supported. So that is why we need a change. Thank you very much for the Conservatives. Tom McLaren. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just going to break the fourth wall for a minute. Can I just check, is there anybody in the room who voted for Brexit or is considering voting Conservative? Literally nobody. Well, the pressure is off me. <laughs> Thank you. The, the pressure is off me this evening. I'll, I'll uh, place that firmly on the shoulders of the Remain candidates uh, this evening. 
as you are no doubt aware, the Conservative Party is uh, fully committed to delivering on the democratic mandate that was delivered in 2016. I appreciate that there's going to be a lot of shaking heads in the room, but that is the, the party position. Um, as far as it goes, if you're looking for a party to back that is going to uh, deliver uh, a remain result, you shouldn't be looking to vote for the Conservatives because we are fully committed to delivering on that mandate. There's only one party, in fact, in this country who can deliver on that mandate in a way which delivers an orderly Brexit and a withdrawal from, a, from the European Union which will allow us to maintain a working, strong, close relationship with our partners in Europe, and that is the Conservative Party. Thank you very much. Uh, Tom for the Greens, Catherine Rowett. Uh, hello, it's very nice to be here. So um, the Green Party says uh, yes to Europe and no to climate chaos. Uh, we've been consistently in favour of remaining uh, and uh, Caroline Lucas has been at the forefront of uh, proposing the people's vote. People's vote, not a rerun of the referendum, uh, but because the deal that may be on the table, whatever that deal is, may not be the one that the people voted for. Uh, we can win here because this is a proportional uh, representation type of election. We were 1% short last time of getting a green MEP. There's been a huge rise in the number of green votes everywhere that people could vote green in the last, uh, in this, this month. Uh, there has been a surge. So we are expecting to be able to win and it would be unwise to remove your vote from the green if what you want is green. Green will be for the future and for now. Now, independent candidate Attila Sordas. I got to stand for this. Thanks for the invitation. Um, good evening, Cambridge. So I'm uh, Attila, uh, and I'm happy to say that I'm one of you uh, living here in the last decade um, in Cambridge, being a fairly typical uh, continental European science immigrant. Uh, that means I'm also a cross-border candidate, being a citizen of another European country. I'm from Budapest. And uh, the very fact that I'm standing here is telling you uh, that how strongly I feel about an open UK within an open Europe. But also I'm in a position to talk about something else, not just something that divides us currently in this country, but something that might unite us. So I'm not sure, probably all of you know that the last decades of uh, your life currently is spent in ill health due to biological aging. Um, so times are not working for us and political times are not working for us either. But the solution is that we can fix both and we can advance healthy longevity. So for us to have extra healthy decades till the end of our life, so we can harness the longevity dividend. Um, and Vitella? And um, I'll be a bit harsh, Chairman, I apologize. Uh, and uh, for Labour, Alvin Shum. Good evening, my name is Alvin, and I have less than a minute to explain the Labour Party's position on Brexit, so good luck to me. <laughs> I hope I can have more time for that. Uh, so, um, Labour's committed, <laughs> committed to ending Brexit, and frankly, the only way that's going to be resolved is a deal that is passed in, the, in British Parliament. At the moment, there is no majority for Remain, and there's no majority for no-deal Brexit. And the only way I can see it being passed is basically a, a vote on a deal with the option to Remain. And I know for a fact that there are hundreds of MPs, hundreds of Labour members, and myself committed to supporting Remain in that, in that, in that vote. 
what I would also say is this is also an election for vision for Europe and also, our, and also for Britain. And I'm standing here advocating better rights for workers, better environmental protections, and also equality for all. Thank you. Thank you, Alvin. And for the Liberal Democrats, Lucy Nefsinger. Good evening, Cambridge. Um, this is the first European election in my memory, uh, which is actually going to be about Europe uh, and where the key issue is this country's place in the European Union. I'm not going to have very much trouble explaining to you the Liberal Democrats' position on Europe. That's not going to take me very long. I'll give you the polite version. Our position is to stop Brexit. We believe that... <laughs> Brexit is doing incredible damage to this country. Um, it's not only doing damage uh, to our economy, it is also doing appalling damage to our public services where nothing is happening, there is no progress in improving our schools and our hospitals, but it's also providing, proving incredibly divisive in our society. And we need to stop it, and we need to stop it now. But the Liberal Democrats are not just a party about stopping Brexit. That is a really critical issue. It is a really important policy. But we are also a party who deeply believe in the rights of individuals. We believe passionately in LGBT rights. We believe in women's rights. We believe in rights for those of disabilities. I thought that that was all a settled issue um, in the See? Western world. It's under threat. Please vote Liberal Democrat to stop issues. Right. <laughs> And to finish with its uh, turn of UKIP and Stuart Agnew. Good evening. I've represented you in the European Parliament for the last 10 years. I have a good voting record. I get a lot of letters from you. I answer them very sensibly and seriously. We put a great deal of research into your letters, meaning that I often get follow-up letters from constituents saying, Dear Mr Agnew, we wrote to all seven MEPs, but you were the only one to reply to us in full. UKIP, as you know, is the party, traditional party of Brexit, and we still are. You may wonder, well, what's the difference between UKIP and the Brexit party? It's quite simple. The Brexit party want to delay Brexit. UKIP want an immediate Brexit. My most controversial statement tonight, though, concerns climate change. I am a denier, and I'm longing for a question on it. Thank you very much. I think we've established our pantomime villain for the evening. Uh, Stuart, thank you very much indeed. We'll turn to our first of our, our main questions, if you like, this evening. And the first is simply, do you want a people's vote? And we're going to ask Neil Carmichael of Change UK to answer that one first. Remember, just a minute to start off with. Yes, we definitely do want a people's vote. We want to uh, make sure that we have one and that we have a remain option on the ballot paper and we will be campaigning to remain when we get that vote. Absolutely, period. That's what we want. We must stay in the European Union. And we, wish, and we should do so uh, because it is just so important that we recognise that this is our nation's future at stake here. It is really essential that we understand this is going to last for decades and the last three years have demonstrated that we cannot have a Brexit which does not do damage to this country and our people. Thank you Neil. Let's uh, move then to Tom McLaren of the Conservatives. 
Thank you very much. I think um, you know the Conservative Party position on this is extremely clear. Uh, we don't support a second referendum. Um, a second referendum in our view, would be extremely damaging to this country. We've seen the division in this country since 2016 um, that has been driven by you know, both sides of the debate, extremes on both ends. And it's vitally important that when you're given a democratic mandate, a message from the electorate, irrespective of whether you believe in that or not, you get on with it and you deliver it. That is our party's position and that is uh, what we will be following through. And it's mostly important that we remember as a society that these years of turbulence, um, they may not deliver the result that everybody wants. It's very difficult to deliver a Brexit that everybody's going to agree with. But afterwards, we need to stitch back society. We need to come back together as a group of people, as a nation, and move forward in the best way possible. Catherine. It's an important principle of democracy uh, that uh, the electorate that makes a decision about something should include all those who are most likely to be worst affected by it. Uh, the uh, referendum that we had on Brexit didn't include some of the most vulnerable people, the people who'd been paying taxes here for years. So one of the reasons why we want a people's vote is because it, uh, we should be allowed to change our minds, we should be allowed to ask the people who are actually affected, we should be allowed to ask the people whether what is being proposed is the thing that they thought that they were getting, we should be allowed to explain why there are no unicorns. And for that reason, we have to set out a proper referendum with a question that is clear. There were at least two kinds of leave, maybe three kinds of leave that were being proposed. There was the leave of the very wealthy who want tax havens, and there was the leave of the very uh, poor and disadvantaged That's in Catherine. the uh, regions. And, and we'll move to Attila, please. So democracy is um, based on a premise that human nature is flexible, dynamic, and people can change their minds. There are studies saying that uh, one-time political deadlines are one of the least democratic ones in terms of the deadlines that can be given to people in terms of periods of political decisions making. And Alvin. After three years of Brexit, I'm absolutely exhausted about Brexit, and I want it to end as soon as possible, frankly. Um, the idea that Theresa May is going to you know, ask a parliament to vote for for fourth time on her deal it seems absolutely ludicrous. So, for me, a people's vote seems to be the only way that we can actually break this deal. So I am supportive of a people's vote. Thank you. Lucy. Yes, I am absolutely a supporter of a people's vote, and I don't understand how anyone can consider that voting again is anti-democratic. Uh, we have um, far more information now about what the real options are for Brexit, many of which were dressed up as all sorts of unicorns, as was referred to earlier. Uh, we, there, is, there is also the absolutely critical point that... In a democracy, people are allowed to change their minds. We have already changed our government since 2016. It is three years ago now. The, the mandate that was had by the Conservatives in 2017, 2015 was to some extent taken away in 2017. Um, and we have to, be, have to allow the people to look at whatever final deal is offered and say whether that is what they wanted when they voted for Brexit. So yes, we must have a people's vote. And Stuart. 
If there is a second vote, it means there should never ever be a referendum on anything again in this country because we have set the precedent of anything at all. We have set the precedent that only one answer is acceptable. The European Union has form on this. On five occasions previously, people in Europe have voted against further integration into the European Union and they've been told one way or another to vote again. We should honour the vote of three years ago and if it turns out to be wrong, there is nothing on earth to stop a political party forming and going in front of the electorate at the next general election and say, vote for us, if we have a majority in government, we will apply to rejoin the European Union. Thank you. And uh, finally to Edmund. Thank you very much. I wondered if I was going to get the chance. Ah, of course uh, so. Um, of course, uh, all this talk of uh, a people's vote comes to me really rather strangely because we've already had the people's vote and everybody knows what the result of the people's vote was. There might there might have been uh, a quite a large number of um, poor losers around, but really, until we've had the implementation of a very clear result uh, that we had in 2016, I don't think it is reasonable at all. I'll say one more thing, which is that look at the people who are actually calling for a second referendum. They are basically Remainers. They are looking for a pseudo-democratic fig leaf to cover up the fact that they would really like to simply revoke Article 50 and remain in the European Union, um, but they know that to do so would be waving a massive two-fingered salute, not just to the 17.4 million people who voted to leave in the referendum, but actually a large chunk of those who voted to remain as well, many of whom I have talked to and who now say, no, the democratic decision must stand. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to take some questions in a moment, but um, I'd also kind of like to pick up on a, on a couple of things uh, here with uh, a few of our panellists. Uh, Alvin, I know you seem to be in support of uh, a people's vote, and quite often uh, we read the news on Cambridge Breakfast, on Cambridge 105, and it's a news story such as senior Labour figure says there should be a people's vote. And then we get all the mess which was in the manifesto of this is going in and that's going in or that's not going in. Uh, you know, who, who do we believe? And the, do we believe a senior person or do we believe another senior person who sometimes say quite contradictory things? Uh, what I would say is that the Labour Party, that I'm part of, is a democratic organisation. We have 500,000 members. We have members proposing policy of a national policy. I'm getting, I'm getting quite cryptic into like... Labour Party organisation now. Um, we are a democratic organisation, we have a different, wide, wide variety of opinions, um, but certainly in Cambridge, uh, your MP is quite prominently for Remain. Your, the Cambridge Labour Party is prominently for Remain. I am prominently for Remain. I know that the candidates... South Shields, then the Labour MP uh, there might have a very different view to Daniel Zeichner here. No, absolutely. Um, but that's why we elect uh, members of parliament to get into parliament to, and they're there at the moment to try and pr propose the best deal possible. At the moment, and we may have disagreements about what that deal may be, um, but at the end of the day, I want parliament to pa pass a deal. And, and for me, I think the only way that a deal can be passed is with the people's vote. And I think it's right and it's fair for us to go, these are the exact terms that have been proposed, as you would do in the Irish in, in Ireland when they, you know, when they do a referendum, they propose exact details about what this actually means and stands for. Um, so I don't think it's a contradiction that we have a, a wide variety of opinions within the Labour Party proposing um, what they think is best for this country. 
and hopefully they can come to agreement in Parliament and make pass a deal, and that we can make a vote on it. Okay, thank you. Uh, in theory, it's 30 seconds, but I know I interrupted you, so I was going to indulge you a little bit more on that. Um, I'd kind of like to also uh, ask of uh, Tom, if I may. The Conservatives, as you've said, want to deliver on, on the Brexit deal, but as we all know, there's been a little bit of uncertainty here and there. And so for those of you on your party who still like many of them do, want us to leave the European Union, well, just have another vote to confirm it, and then we'll be happy. The overall position of the Conservative Party is quite clear on whether we should have a second vote or not, and the, uh, the answer to that question is no, we shouldn't. The, um, may, there are a number of reasons uh, driving that. For me personally, uh, the reason why I don't support a second referendum is, as has been outlined previously, we had a vote in 2016. Um, the negotiation of a withdrawal agreement and a new relationship with, uh, with Europe is extremely complicated. Um, to take that, to try and uh, summarise it down beyond the, the very simple answer that was given, or the very simple question and the very simple answer that was given in 2016 would be extremely difficult, extremely damaging. We've already seen enough division in this country. It's extremely important that as a nation we begin to uh, stitch back together the society that we've got, that we move on from the Brexit debate and start to focus on the more important issues that are facing people in this country. And I hope we'll have an opportunity to discuss some of those later okay, on. Okay, we'll look at some of those in, um, in a short while's time. I want to do some audience questions, though, if we can at this point. Uh, oh dear, all oh, lots of hands. Where are my microphones? If we get one person from over this side and one person from over this side, and then we'll take the person on this side first and we'll see what they have to say. Near us, near us. There we are, gentleman in the blue shirt. Is it blue? Just about blue. Um, good evening. What positive vision for Britain's future in Europe can you offer to make it worth us electing you to serve as our MEP, working cooperatively with European colleagues, that would win the votes of those of us who, not, uh, who want not so much to take our country back as to take it forwards? Now, I don't want to go down the line if I, if I have to. Have, hopefully, you'll get a chance. Let me start with Lucy, and we will, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pick out a few just to, uh, to move things along, if you don't mind, sir. That's quite a question to answer in a minute. Um, I think it is really important that we, we look at what's happening, uh, not just in Europe, actually, but across the world. And I think it is um, really, really crucial that we have a strong liberal voice speaking out in Europe, uh, and across the world for the values that Western democracy has stood up for for so long. Um, and those are values of tolerance, of freedom for people to live and uh, worship as they choose, um, rights for all different types of people. And those are really being challenged across the world at the moment. Um, so I think it's absolutely critical that there is a strong voice in the European Parliament and a strong voice coming from Europe championing those views uh, because we're not getting it from other parts of the world at the moment. So my vision for um, speaking out in the European Union is for championing women's rights. For make, we've, with the, the news from America at the moment on abortion rights is so horrific, and I just thought that battle had been won. Um, it is so depressing to find ourselves back having to fight those fights um, about the, the equal rights of people of all race, colour, um, gender... But we are going to have to fight those rights, and that is something that we're just going to have to accept, that that battle goes on, and that's what I would like to be doing in the European Union. I'm going to ask, thank you very much, Lisa. I'm going to ask Attila, please, to, uh, to give an independent perspective. Yeah, thank you. So one of the biggest discrimination that affects most of us uh, is going to be ageism, one of our lifetime. It's sometimes called that we're going to be discriminating against our future selves. 
And um, what I would be working on in terms of human longevity, which is a positively framed vision, would be to try to remove these inner restrictions that restricting our lives to flourish in late life as well. So the way I would reach this would be uh, an additional 30 billion euros extra yearly for advanced biomedicine and for all the academic education and the big consortium projects to come up with a dynamic, transparent and enabling regulation around these so this can be accessible for all. And I have to tell you that it's already, uh, it's, it's global warming, climate change is one of the global issues, one of the big European issues, but healthy longevity is another one. Thank you, Attila. Um, if we could focus in and narrow in on, though, on, the, on the people's vote for the question, we'll probably get a chance, hopefully later on, to broaden out our views. So any questions specifically on the, the people's vote? I'm going to ask the young man in red over here if we could get a, a microphone uh, to him, please. I'm assuming you didn't vote in the referendum either way. <laughs> <laughs> many, many of you are standing on a Remain and Reform ticket. So what would you reform about the European Union and what do you think is achievable within that framework? Can you ask uh, Neil to, uh, to start us off on that one? That's absolutely a great question and thank you very much. I think there's a huge amount we need to reform about Europe. First of all, too few people actually understand how it works and I think that's a problem in British government, let alone uh, around the public. So for example, I'd like to see the Council of Ministers brought out into the public, made properly transparent so what they decide is actually known about and how they decided it. Second, I think we need to think about foreign policy and our views about beyond Europe. The great triumph of Europe was in fact in Enlargement, which was driven by people like Helmut Kohl, John Major, Francois Mitterrand. That's the kind of thing we want to happen, see happen next, because that move basically altered the nature uh, of foreign policy in a dramatic and significant way, positive for your future as a young person, and positive too for the way in which the world operates. And last but not least, what I'd like to see about Europe is making sure that we really understand that by having networks across it, by exchanging information, by understanding the value of education across the European Union, we ourselves can make a huge contribution to the development of culture, to the development of knowledge, and to the development of technology, which in turn will make us stronger when we tackle China, India, and other great emerging economies of tomorrow. Thank you very much. Uh, Stuart, you've seen the inner workings of uh, the European Parliament since 2009. What would you do? It is so easy to say, oh, we're going to reform the European Union. The Conservatives did that 10 years ago, and they managed to form a group, the ECR. Uh, and that, that was going to reform the European Union chaps. It is irreformable, as they found out. The only thing they have managed to do in 10 years, and that was overturned, was to reduce the number of times we visit Strasbourg from 12 times a year to 11 times a year. We we had a super sat a Strasbourg week where we had a session on the Monday and Tuesday, a day off on the Wednesday, and a session on the Thursday and Friday. That was the only reform they achieved. And a month later, the Commission said, no, that's against the spirit of the treaties, and you will never do it again. You cannot reform something that is designed on a ratchet process where the people in charge are not elected and you cannot dismiss them. Thank you, Stuart. Um, I will do one more question, specifically on people's votes, sir. Okay, wait for the microphone. Gentleman in the front row here in the, in the blue T-shirt. Hi, my name's Victor Banyas and I live in Cambridge. And one of my things that sort of bugged me out on all of this is, is the accountability that individual politicians have on what they say. 
Um, I'd like to know if any, any party is taking any steps of making politicians accountable for the lies that they're saying. They're, they're, they're trying to normalize lies by calling them uni, unicorns when in fact they are lies. And I'd like that when we go on for voting, I'd like that people are accounted for for what they say. Um. Thank you, sir. Um, let's, um, let's, ask, let's ask Catherine. Uh, for the Greens, uh, start off on this one. Uh, yes, so um, uh, we would definitely be in favour of holding people to account for their um, uh, what they say in electoral campaigns. Of course, the uh, the uh, referendum has been under investigation for the amount of spending that has been was uh, took place on the part of the Leave. Uh, side, but there are other aspects to the Leave campaign, such as the misrepresentation of the amount of money that would be available for the NHS uh, and uh, other economic uh, miscalculations, which should really have been uh, included in the investigation. We don't have the right legislation for that at the moment. Of course, it is the case that had that uh, the electoral. Um, uh, uh, authorities had the right to uh, um, challenge the uh, the referendum. It could have been. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not talking this right. But anyway, so the, the the point is that because it was only an advisory referendum, it can't be declared invalid, uh, and yet it would have been declared invalid uh, on the basis of the um, the the uh, misspending. Uh, scandals and so on, had it been more than an advisory referendum. Okay, um, thank you, Catherine. Uh, Let me ask uh, Edmund his view on this one as well. Okay, thank you very much. It's a very good question. Um, I think that the Brexit party is absolutely with you uh, on this particular one. Um, you know, we did say, uh, yes, absolutely uh, we are. We, I said in my opening speech that the, one of the things that we were concerned about was the restoration of trust between the people and their members of parliament uh, after we'd seen massive repudiation of general election manifesto promises. Um, and I quite agree with you. And your mechanism, your mechanism, of course, is simply to vote them out. And the trouble with the European Union is that it's run by people who aren't elected at all, they're not accountable, and you cannot remove them by any kind of democratic process. Let's, uh, thank you very much, uh, everyone. Let's move on then to uh, another question at uh, this point. And I was looking at uh, some stats, and it seems that the number one issue of concern to European voters uh, used to be the economy. Now, though, thanks to 16-year-old Greta Thunberg and others, it's climate change. So I'd like to ask our candidates what their policy on the environment would be. And we'll start off by asking Tom for the Conservatives. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad that you asked me. Um, I, just to take a step back, I mean, firstly, I'm, I'm extremely um, in awe of uh, Greta and the, the work that she's done in raising the profile of uh, climate change and the environment uh, globally. I mean, I, you know, somebody applauding there, I, I, totally, uh, I totally agree. Um, it's been an amazing body of work that she's done, and uh, for somebody of such a young age to gain such traction with um, international politicians is, is remarkable. Um, I'm a little bit annoyed uh, with uh, the Conservative Party as a whole, because we don't sing the praises of some of the great work that's been done in this country already. 
Um, if we look at, for example, overall um, emissions of, of uh, climate change gases have fallen by 25% since 2010. You don't really hear too much about that. This year already we've had 1,000 hours of coal-free power. We've seen a 37% increase in um, in renewable source energy since 2010. There's been a significant, um, significant progress, but you know, the party as a whole, and, and certainly I recognise that it's by no means far enough, and there is a significant challenge to the environment and to climate change. Uh, the Conservative Party has a 25-year a plan in place for the environment. Um, Tom? Which I'd love to tell you more about. There may be a chance later on. You never, you never know. Uh, let's hear from uh, Catherine for the Greens now. So we already have three Green MEPs in uh, the European Parliament who, uh, from the, in the 2014 uh, European Parliament. There are 51 in the, uh, across Europe in the Green and the EFA group. Uh, we've achieved a, a great deal over the last um, Parliament. Uh, we've, got, we've now got a target of one-third of energy from uh, renewables by 2030, but we actually want to go for carbon neutral by 2030, so we are pushing for that. Uh, we have um, achieved a number of other uh, initiatives already, uh, and we have uh, phased out palm oil in biofuel, which protects the rainforests. Uh, so there are many, many things that we can do uh, across Europe by collaboration. It's vital that we should be in Europe doing these collaborative things with our green neighbours, green uh, politicians are elected all over Europe in a way that we're not used to here, but we can change it uh, now in the 19 to 24 uh, years old age group Catherine. we are leading in the polls. Thank you very much. And our independent candidate, Attila. Thank you. So I don't think I can advance the collective wisdom here a lot. I feel very green about this. Um, but uh, I must say that I think that um, planetary health should be backed by individual health as well. There's this concept I'm thinking, if we get to live healthier for longer, which is what I'm calling eco-longevity. I think we're going to be way more responsible if we get to live longer as well. Thank you very much, uh, Attila. And we will move to uh, Alvin, Alvin Trump for Labour. Um, the Labour Party is committed to uh, dealing with climate change. That's why we actually passed a vote in Parliament uh, declaring a climate emergency. Um, we realise that this is a job that can be done uh, with other countries. And if we were elected, we will be uh, working with other sister parties uh, to... We've made a commitment uh, from the Party of European Socialists to be zero carbon by 2050. I think we're acknowledging that that needs to be stronger, we need to do more. But definitely if Labour Party has a green transport strategy, we're trying to propose a clean air strategy. So we are doing many, many different things to try and deal with the fact that we have a global issue that can be resolved with, by working together with other countries. Thank you very much, Alvin. Lucy for the Lib Dems. Um, I agree with those voters who think that this is absolutely the most important issue facing us at the moment. Um, I think it's another really important reason why we need to remain in the European Union. This is an international issue. It needs to be dealt with with our European partners. Um, I'm really proud of the Liberal Democrats' record in government on this and locally what the, the Liberal Democrats in South Cambridgeshire have been doing, in Bedfordshire. There are all sorts of good, innovative things going on. But the 
thing that's so frustrating is that actually we know so much of what we need to do to fix this problem. We just have to get on and do it. We need the political will to do it. And it is incredibly encouraging to see that this is now the top issue because that's when that political action might start to happen. And I really, really hope that the, the change that we're seeing across all the political parties bringing this issue up the agenda will make a difference because, my goodness, we need it too. Thank you very much, uh, Lucy, and to Stuart, for you, Keb. Now's your chance to boo the bad man at the pantomime. Uh, the, environment... the environment really falls into three categories, saving energy, stopping pollution, and this latest fad that we can change the world's weather. I'm all on board with saving energy. I'm all on board with reducing pollution, particularly of plastic. And it's a concern to me that a firm in this region has made a self-destruct plastic and the EU, EU are making life as difficult for them as possible. As far as the climate change goes, this is a map of the world. You can't really see it. This shows the hotspots of CO2. And those hotspots of CO2 are all above the rainforests. None of the hotspots of CO2 are above the big industrial areas. This is a satellite map, and it's been taken by two different satellites from two different firms. This blows the entire theory apart. But, but more, more serious than that, in UKIP, we really do object to the way the IPCC is operating. It is completely undermining the whole peer review uh, process. Stuart. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> let's uh, move now to uh, the Brexit party and uh, Edmund Fordham. I think we're standing in these European elections on the simple issue of uh, restoring uh, democracy and delivering upon the democratic mandate of the... Change. I know the question was on climate change, so if you want a detailed answer to that, I think you're going to have to wait for our general election manifesto. Um, <laughs> what, 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 has been, what has been exposed... What has been exposed, I think, though, in Stuart's comment is that this is a matter of controversy. And uh, I did say in my opening uh, uh, little speechlet that we do favour a healthy and open debate, hopefully in collegial and civil fashion, on all matters of controversy. Thank you very much, Edmund. And uh, Neil, Change UK. Well, you've just heard confirmation that Brexit has no policies whatsoever. Now, there are three things I want to say. First is leadership. We are about a fifth of the world's gross domestic product if we stay in the European Union, work in the European Union, and fight for the things that we think are important, which is actually protecting the environment. So that leverage, that, le that leadership that we have through the European Union is point number one. Point number two, many people say, oh, we don't like regulations. Actually, if you want to protect the environment, you want regulations. You want regulations to make sure bad behavior is stopped. You want regulations to make sure that good things happen about the environment. That's how, for years, things have been done in terms of protecting the environment and other things. So regulations, properly implemented, properly decided, properly discussed, are the answer. And last but not least, when I was in Parliament, I worked hard to protect Antarctica, and I got some legislation through the Antarctic Act. 2013. I hope you all know about it. But 
The key thing I noticed when I went down there was that Rothera, our headquarters in um, Antarctica, was basically like a mini EU. It had people from all over the European Union, very and much, it was doing Neil. a great job for us. Well, I'm hoping this is a good opportunity for questions. Do keep them to the topic of climate change if you can. There's a gentleman uh, at the back, I think with the beard. If you get the microphone to him. As a remainer, uh, I still have concerns. It will mean freedom of movement will mean an increase or a lack of a decrease in the number of flights. What will the panel do to curb the number of flights taken? Flights, the number of flights taken, the uh, gentleman uh, suggests that uh, freedom of movement uh, might, uh, well, keep them at their current level at, uh, I, I guess, at, I guess at, uh, at best. Uh, maybe start with Catherine on that one. Yes, so uh, we have uh, a number of policies to uh, reduce aviation. Uh, we think that the um, uh, tax breaks for aviation should be removed uh, and we are in favour of a frequent flyer tax. 70% uh, of the flights are taken by 15% of the people. Uh, you're right that freedom of movement might seem as if it will make people move more, but actually, on the whole... Uh, it sometimes means that you end up living in the place where you needed to be to work. Uh, in, in addition, uh, it's possible to go by train. I went by train to Greece and to Italy, so we are in favour of uh, improved transport uh, that is not flying. So much of our work goes into uh, investigating the ways in which taxation currently advantages polluting kinds of transport, including cruise ships, for example, uh, and uh, much, discourages uh, train travel. Thank you. Tasca Lucy to come in at uh, this point for the Lib Dems. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I, I, I think that Catherine is right, that freedom of movement is not likely to lead to more flying. We do need to prevent the, the increase in flying. Um, the Liberal Democrats are very clear that we would, not, we would stop the expansion of Heathrow and the expansion of other airports. This is completely the wrong direction to be going in. Uh, but it doesn't mean that people shouldn't vi visit other countries or visit family in other places. Um, it just means that we have to do it in a sustainable and sensible way. And we do know how to get sustainable transport. It is possible. Um, people who cycle around Cambridge know that all the time. It can be very good for you. Um, but we need to make sure that people are travelling in sensible, sustainable ways and not flying. That's absolutely right. I did want to say one other thing, which was just in response to the pantomime that I have to my left, which is that actually... Um, Climate change and climate change denial is not funny. These spurious facts that we get have been thrown at us are one of the reasons why we now have an emergency, because we knew 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, that this was a massive problem. If we had dealt with it in that time, we would be much better off now. We would not be facing the crisis that we are. So... <laughs> I know, Catherine. Um, but, but actually, we have to stop accepting dubious facts, which are total rubbish, and recognise that the science is now utterly clear and we need to act fast.
Thank you very much, uh, Lucy. Do we have any other questions on the, uh, the issue in particular of environment? Uh, there is a lady over there in the, uh, in the middle. We take her, and then there's also a lady in the front row here we can take uh, immediately afterwards. Uh, lady, lady, there with the glasses. I'm 17 years old. What we have done on climate change so far is not enough, however impressive. If you were called on to lead a six-year national mobilization to get this country to net zero carbon emissions by 2025, what would be your top three priorities? Whilst you've still got the microphone, can you leave the microphone with for just a moment? I want to ask the question. The, the, um, you're familiar, I'm sure, with uh, Greta Thunberg. Did you take part in any of the uh, protests uh, by, um, by school children in, in Cambridge, or are you too old? Uh, I haven't taken part, but I have to say I fully support them. Okay, uh, thanks very much. Um, let, let's hear from uh, Neil Carmichael to start off with, with on this one. Another great question. The answer, first of all, is clean energy, making sure that all of the energy we produce is actually carbon neutral. And I think that's a really important point because we're clearly going to need cars. Second, what we're going to have to do is make sure those cars are actually not using fossil fuels of any type. We know set goals and make sure that they are properly in implemented. Thirdly, I think we've got to do something about waste because we waste far, far too much. Um, I'm uh, formerly in agriculture, and I well remember being absolutely dismayed at the packaging policies, uh, at the way in which food was chucked out when it was reached a certain point, point, and where the transport and logistics systems were not up to scratch. So those are the sort of things we need to do, and we need to be really tough about it. And transport, too, more widely, um, in terms of we've just been discussing, has to be uh, made carbon neutral. And we've got to say that, but also do it. And that's why I keep emphasising the, the importance of the role of the European Union. Do you know what? It was Ted Heath who got us into the European Union and he, right at the start, made a speech in 1973 saying, well, that's what we've got to do. The trouble is, too many leaders of, uh, in, in, in political parties in this country have blamed the European Union for everything and not taken responsibility themselves. And Alvin, would you like to, uh, to pick up on this one as well? Yes. Uh, yes. Firstly, yeah, we definitely need more sustainable energy. Um, no matter what the Tory party may say, you know, they pulled subsidies on solar panel. We want to restore it. Secondly, we make, need to make sure that our homes are more uh, eco-friendly. Um, so much energy is wasted um, due to, because uh, basically we waste so much energy within our own houses. And lastly, also green transport strategy. Green transport strategy. We are quite good in Cambridge because we cycle everywhere. Um, but you know, our transport links from, across the whole of East of England are frankly quite terrible. Uh, we need to do more so that we can actually use uh, trains to get from places to Ipswich. It's not just going directly to London all the time. Um, so those are the three things I would try and do. Okay, thank you, Alvin. And I'll take, there was the lady in the, in the front here, uh, right in the front row, if we could, uh, get the microphone across to her. She's very close to Anthony's camera as well. <laughs> I hope this is connected. I think it is. I'm interested in the effect of 5G. And the research that's being done suggests that it's very, very damaging to health. And I'm very concerned about that for my children and grandchildren. And all I hear from public... Uh, publications, <laughs> sorry... Um, is that it's safe, it's going to be wonderful, and it's going to make all our internet connections faster and so on. 
do we actually need that at the expense of our health? I'd kind of like it to be possible to make a phone call on the train between Cambridge and King's Cross, but that's another, that's another story, I suspect, altogether. Uh, Edmund, maybe you have a view on this. 5G? I'm not sure I do. <laughs> um, I, I don't know about the um, health issues. I have not looked into the matter, so I'm not going to answer you. Um, the, I have heard, of course, that it does depend upon line-of-sight communications and uh, the uh, trial of the technology have involved people chopping down lots of trees in order to make sure that they get their line-of-sight communications, which doesn't seem to me to be terribly environmentally friendly. Um, um, does that really answer your question? I haven't studied the matter on the health things. I have not, I have not um, researched it. So we'll, it we'll forgive you, Edmund, if, you don't, if, you're, if you're not familiar with, uh, with, with the topic. Um, maybe uh, Tom can offer it a view? This could, be the, this could be the question from hell, I'm afraid, for, for, I'm, for all I'm afraid, of our panellists. I'm afraid I've done uh, no more research on the matter than Edmund has. Um, amusingly, um, I do have um, a, an anecdote to tell, which is um, I was having lunch with my fellow uh, Conservative candidates uh, the other day. Jeffrey uh, Van Orden was asking, who's uh, number one on our list, was asking the same question because his daughter is extremely concerned on the same basis and has a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, queries for him and was asking of uh, our number seven on the list, uh, Waz Mughal, who is, it turns out, a telecoms engineer. His answer was, uh, there's a lot of news, it'll all be fine. Now, I'm not a technical specialist, but when somebody who works in the field tells me that, I have to take him at face value. Nonetheless, as a general point of principle, it's extremely important that any new technology that comes through has extremely rigorous testing. I know there was a, a number of concerns around mobile telephony uh, when it first came out and about the impacts that it had. Those turned out to be ungrounded. I'm certainly hopeful that it's the same about uh, 5G, but I hope that the government and uh, the relevant authorities are putting the, the work and uh, the experimentation into finding out exactly what's going on and, and what the impacts will be. Did you, do you want to, uh, to, 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 um, to, uh, to, to come in on that one? Sir? Well, I, actually have an expert. <laughs> I, I actually can't answer this question because I had a campaign group in my constituency which was obsessed with the idea of um, mobile phones doing damage. Actually, they don't, um, nor do the uh, um, various radar systems that are used. What we should instead be talking about is the amazing impact they have on improving society, improving the economy. And let's think of Africa, for example. They don't even bother with landlines now. They've gone straight into mobile. And what a fabulous empowering thing that has been for the people of Africa. And it really reminds me of an, an essential point here. Technology can be our friend. It can work in our favour and it, it's connected too to the issues we were talking about before. We've got to understand technology is there. We've got to be clear about how we use it. And for Europe, it's a great opportunity uh, to demonstrate how we can affect uh, politics and the economy of the world. Thank you very much, uh, Neil. Um, I hope that went uh, a little bit towards answering your question. I'm tempted to say, being, being Cambridge, there may very well be somebody in the audience with a, uh, with a degree in the topic. But we, we have to move on, I'm, I'm afraid. Um, and we're going to ask about migration and uh, freedom of movement. Over the uh, last two years, the EU countries have uh, granted protection to more than 800,000 asylum seekers and resettled refugees. Uh, Cambridge has offered places to 100 Syrian refugees. Would you welcome more? Uh, Teller. 
Well, I'm an immigrant and I'm for things open. Short and sweet, thank you very much, Attila. And uh, that uh, takes us to Alvin. Um, it may be unsurprising. Um, it's not surprising for anyone to know that I probably am in favour of freedom of movement. Um, my family, my well, my family's. Um, I'm second generation from Hong Kong, so therefore I'm come. I've come to UK from the Commonwealth because of the opportunities that I was able to. My family could gain from the UK. Um, why should we be denying those those um, benefits to people across the whole of the EU? There are so many people who have come to this country and have enriched the lives of so many people in this country. I have a brother-in-law who's French. I wouldn't have my nieces. My family's uh, our family who lives in the Netherlands. Okay, we are we gain so much more uh, for being part of a community of countries than we are from being from excluding ourselves from them. Alvin, thank you very much. Uh, Lucy for the Lib Dems. Um, I absolutely agree. I think that immigration is um, the, the, the value that immigrants bring and the talents that they bring are of huge benefit to this country. Um, my father-in-law came here from Sri Lanka, uh, I think getting on for 50 years ago now. He's an amazingly talented musician. He's brought amazing gifts to this country, as have many other immigrants. I think we need to disentangle some of these issues. So I think the issue of immigration, the issue of freedom of movement and the issue of refugees are all separate. And we need to make sure that they are recognised as such. Um, I am ashamed of how many refugees this country takes. We should be taking far, far more than we are. Cambridge has done better than many places, but the whole country is, is not taking its um, fair share. Um, my brother-in-law is from Greece. That country is um, having to take far, far more um, immigrants from um, the south of the Mediterranean. Uh, and, and it should be a burden... It should be a burden which is much more fairly shared across the EU and having not got the answer, being able to answer the question about um, how we would reform the EU, that's one of the things that needs reforming, it certainly is. Um, but that is also a different issue from the issue of freedom of movement and the issue of freedom of movement is just as much about the rights of people in this country to go and work and live abroad as it is for EU people to come and live and yeah, work here. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Lucy. And to Stuart, please, for UK. Yeah, yes, I agree uh, with, with the way the previous speaker split this up. Uh, as far as immigration goes, we are a crowded country and I think we should be able to control our immigration policy. Many other countries in the world do the same. They're not vicious, vile, racist bigots. They just want to control who comes into their country. That is not unreasonable. As regards uh, re refugees, I feel that our foreign aid budget would be much better spent in building really good refugee camps near these areas of conflict because wars always finish. And it is far better if you can settle people in the, the climate they're used to, if you can get them involved in helping build a refugee camp, much better there than transporting them thousands of miles into countries where, which they're not familiar with and where often tensions can, can result. Because I'm in the, uh, the ENF group in the Parliament, I do hear about the dark side of this, which nobody ever likes to talk about. So, Rather than lining the pockets of wealthy dictators with the money we take from our taxpayers as foreign aid, build good refugee camps and wait for the war to finish. Thank you. 
Thank you, Stuart. And to Edmund now for Brexit Party. Thank you. Um, I didn't expect to be agreeing too much with Lucy Netzinger, but I do think she's made a very um, uh, important contribution, which is to be clear thinking and distinguish between separate issues uh, of immigration, of freedom of movement and of refugees. Um, there's no doubt that the issue of freedom of movement was a very live uh, issue in the, uh, in the referendum uh, that we had in 2016 and of course we do stand for um, control of our own borders because until you've got that you simply cannot have a policy for uh, immigration or for refugees. Thank you very much. Uh, Stuart uh, Neil for Change UK. Well, I like to think of myself as a Viking because I was born in Northumberland. And I'm not saying that was because they were immigrants, they just attacked us. But the fact of the matter is we're all, we're all related uh, to people who have come here. So we want to be open-minded and generous and we'll be remembered for that. Uh, for example, the Asian Ugandans who came here in the 1970s, they are making a massive contribution to our economy now, and we should celebrate that. And we did when we were in the House of Commons after the 40th uh, anniversary. We do know, that, however, that we've got to be sensible about what we're talking about here. So let's get a few facts out. Fact number one, no more people have ever come from the European Union than from the rest of the world into this country and any single year. Not one year. So we're actually talking about the wrong thing if we are thinking, hammer out freedom of movement, that'll solve our immigration problem. Because it won't. Our immigration problem is an issue for us to decide because we're in charge of it. And we need to take responsibility for it. And if I was taking responsibility for it, I'd be far more generous to the people who really need to come here. And I'd be far more accepting of the people who actually need to have here as a country, as a free place, as a place which re relies on good people coming coming here. So that's my approach to immigration. And it's really important that we stop this language which is inappropriate now about talking about other people and why they're here, how they've got here and all of the rest. We are in this country a place where individuals matter. And whatever you know. individual you happen to be, you should be here. Thank you very much. And uh, next uh, to Tom McLaren for the Conservatives. Thank you very much. I should probably declare an interest here. Um, my wife is a first-generation immigrant to this country. She came from Asia. Um, I have uh, two mixed-heritage children, another one on the way, I'm very pleased to say. Um, so I have a, a vested interest in uh, the way that immigration is managed in this country. I think the question, however, was on refugees. If we went now to a camp in Syria and asked the people, what do you want? Most likely, they would respond, I want to go home. I want the war to stop, and I want to go home. That's what we should be helping to make happen. Of course, our, our doors should be open to people who are in need, people who really do uh, rely on us, and we should have a, a managed immigration system which allows people who want to come here and work and better themselves to come into the country and, and have that opportunity. But most of all, you know, in our dealings with difficult regimes, with war-torn uh, war situations, we need to be looking at what is best for those people, what actually do they want and if the answer to that is they just want to go home, we should be helping to make that happen. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. And uh, to Catherine Rowett from the Greens. As with almost all the things that get people wound up, we need to be looking at what are our 
our responsibilities. We have a proud heritage of welcoming refugees and strangers in times of need. But sometimes the times of need are created by other people, and sometimes the times of need are created by ourselves. Sometimes we are selling arms to the countries that are destroying the lives of others. So when that's happening and the refugees are knocking on our door because they cannot live where, where they were coming from, then it's our responsibility not just to take in the refugees and make them welcome and provide for them, it's our responsibility to look at what we're doing. And the same applies to climate change. It's the parts of the world that are most vulnerable, the parts where there are droughts and shortages. These are caused by the Western lifestyle, which is exhausting the planet's resources. We are putting all our efforts into growth in GDP, measuring our success by that, and then wondering why the rest of the world is begging to come in. It's a complete upside-down economy, and that's what we need to do when we want a six-year reformation of uh, the whole way the world works. We need to start measuring success, Thank you very much, not Catherine. by uh, GDP, but by something else. Thank you. Okay, we will do some audience questions then on the subject of migration or freedom of movement. As always, put your uh, hand up. I can see a few hands. There is a lady, I think, in... I'm making it the fifth row over there on this, on this side. Keep your hand up. You've got something green in your hair, I think, to help the... That's you. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, do you accept that the breaking point poster used in a referendum by Nigel Farage and UKIP was fundamentally racist? Yeah. We uh, maybe go to Stuart first on, uh, on that particular question, and then to um, across the other side of the table to Edmund. Um, well, it... it depicted people of different races in it, didn't it, as far as I recall. If it had just been one race in entirety, you might say, well, it's racist. But if it shows pictures of different, <laughs> different people, uh, personally, I just thought it reflected the truth. But a lot of people simply don't want to hear the truth. We, are, we, we have received a, an enormous number of migrants since 2005, since the A8 countries joined. And that, I know, has caused problems. And it was all very well for people to shake their heads and say, come on, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. If three million people arrive in this country in a fairly short period of time, it does put huge stress on local resources. It puts stress on housing, it puts stresses on education, where you have young people in schools who can't speak English. Is that, you can be quite a lot of time, haven't you? I'm in right. a good mood. That's enough, thank you. <laughs> what I recall. No, we're done, thank you. I'm to, I'm to, um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Edmund, uh, to you, and then we'll hear from Alvin. Edmund. Well, I'm not quite sure what's uh, really behind this question. Um, it maybe isn't entirely overt. They've stuck me in front of a, uh, a flag which has got the EU stars on it, and I did try to object to that. So. Um, some, well, I uh, think it's somebody, a, a, a um, consequence of where we are. Somebody being photographed in front of a poster doesn't tell you anything at all, really, about what their views are. Um, 
And if the attempt is to cast um, the Brexit party in particular as being a racist party, I think that that is a baseless slander, uh, which I would be um, really rather objecting to. I would not have anything to do. I would not have anything to do with a party that I thought was in any sense racist. And I think if you look at the lineup of the candidates that we've got in the Brexit party, um, our number two candidate who was uh, unveiled at our meeting was Ben Habib, who is part ha Pakistani. He's already had to have a Twitter exchange with Chaka Ramuna, who accused us of uh, racialism. And he said, I think that uh, you've got the ring end of the stick, uh, Mr. Ramuna. Can we meet? and discuss your prejudices. Go look it up on Twitter. We've had Alka Siegel Cuthbert, who was our number four, unveiled at our launch meeting. She is a second generation uh, uh, Indian from an uh, Indian immigrant family. We've got Elizabeth Babadi, who's Nigerian. We've got Christina Jordan, who's Malaysian. Uh, we've even got Lance Foreman, who is Jewish, and he has had to put up with a 30-foot swastika painted on the door of his business premises because he happens to be Jewish. If anything, um, it's the candidates of the Brexit party who've been victims of okay. racial Edwin, slurs. Thank you. Uh, Alvin, please. If it wasn't a racist picture, then why weren't there posters showing French citizens trying to get into this country, or Spanish citizens against this country, or Italian citizens against this country? It was a very specific image. It wasn't even the image of people trying to get into the EU. It was, it was Syrian refugees trying to get into Turkey because they're trying to escape the Syrian war. And it was part of a campaign to scaremonger saying that these people were coming from, uh, from the Middle East into Turkey into this country. It's, it, we were repeatedly told Turkey is not going to enter the EU. And this, this fear that with all these strange people that we don't, who don't look like if it's coming to this country, it's... it's Pandering, it's racist and it's fear mongering, frankly. And uh, Lucy as well, please. Um, I, I just want to answer this slightly more generally. Um, I think the immigration issue was wound up enormously before the referendum vote. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why that vote is so unreliable. I think in the intervening uh, three years, many, many people have come to understand that this country relies on immigrants. We cannot get enough nurses to, ner to look after people in Addenbrooke's hospital. We cannot get enough people to look after elderly people in their homes. We have a really serious skills and um, employment crisis in this country, partly because so many European people are choosing not to come and live here anymore because they don't feel welcome. And that poster was a lot to do with it, and we need to change that. Otherwise, people are not going to be able to retire because we're all going to have to work till we're 75. Thank you, Lucy. And uh, in the, the front row here, please. Hi, I'm Alexandra and I work for the 3 million. Two of the groups most affected at the moment by Brexit are the 3 million EU citizens in the UK and British people living in other EU countries. Uh, I recently had to apply for settled status to continue living in my own home in the UK and my British friends in Romania don't even know what their status will be after Brexit, if Brexit happens. So whatever the Brexit outcome, whatever kind of deal we have or no deal or whatever, it's really crucial now that we ensure those rights are protected. And don't, please don't tell me it's all done and dusted unless you actually write the legislation and unless you actually know how secondary legislation can be changed on citizens' rights. 
people, those people can vote. I'll vote in the UK. I choose to vote in the UK for the EU elections, and I won't vote for anyone who doesn't support 100% citizens' rights, British in Europe, and EU citizens in the UK. So I would like to ask you, what will you do if elected to put pressure on the EU as well, because it's both a UK and the EU issue, to make sure that regardless of, uh, of the deal or no deal, those rights are protected and separated from the other negotiations, because we're speaking about people's lives, uh, and it's, it would, shouldn't be ended up in a situation that people have less fewer rights than some products going up across borders. Uh, we have the three million pledge. I pledge to protect citizens' rights, so if you want to sign it at the end, please let me know. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, Tom, would you like to, uh, to take that first, please? Thank you very much. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fully supportive of that pledge. I'll, I'll certainly sign that afterwards. Uh, it's um, extremely important. It's a very, very clear uh, policy from the Conservative Party that the, ro uh, the rights of um, EU citizens who are in the UK at the moment will be maintained post-Brexit. Obviously, there has to be a process by which those people are, are recognised as being settled within the UK. I, I work with a number of EU citizens who have applied for this, and they told me it took about 15 minutes on their phone. Um, it's, it's all sorted out. Um, I, I can appreciate that, there's, that, it's, um, that there are different circumstances for different people. Um, notwithstanding, it, it is within uh, our control to be able to make that offer to EU citizens. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that uh, we made as a party was not to make that clear from the outset. That should have been the first commitment that the Conservative Party made on day one. If you're in this country, you will have the right to remain in this country and full citizen, uh, a pathway to full citizenship rights post-Brexit. Um, as an individual, I, I totally support the work that our party and our uh, government is doing to put pressure on other EU countries to extend the same rights. Obviously, that's not within our control. However, I fully hope and expect that all EU countries will extend the same rights to e uh, British citizens who rem choose to remain in the EU. Okay, thank you, Tom. Uh, Attila? Thanks. So... If this process that must not be named by me will go through here, um, I would not like to be a um, second-class citizen here. Uh, so uh, I've been living here in the last decade. My kids have been born here. Uh, and I am standing here as a cross-border candidate, being a citizen of another European country, really enjoying to practice this right. Very much uh, indeed. I'll do one more question on uh, this particular topic. There's a lady in the front row there who's just so keen, and we'll uh, we'll hear from her next. Thank you. I'd like to ask uh, the panel about current EU sort of position around uh, refugee camps. So they've already agreed to spend 38 billion euro on camps, primarily keeping out Africans and people from the Middle East. I want to understand how you might uh, change that or how you're going to supplement that. I'm really concerned that they're a coercive way of keeping a lot of black people out of Europe. Um, I am a second generation uh, mixed race uh, person that's come into this country. Interestingly enough, I'm one in three uh, BMEs uh, in Great Britain that voted for Brexit. Uh, 
This is a debate and conundrum people haven't really faced. So there's two things to my question. One, understanding the amount, the obscene amount of money that, that uh, we agree to in terms of the EU as it stands, uh, prohibiting those black people coming through. And two, how do you square that with what's actually happened with the Brexit vote? Thank you. Um, Neil first, Neil Carmichael for Change UK. I just want to respond to first that your question. I'm here because I want to stop Brexit, and I think that's the answer ultimately to the point that you made. I think the other interesting angle is this. We are having this discussion because we're in a weaker position precisely because we are thinking of leaving, and when we do leave, we'll be in a weaker position still. And I think that's wrong, and I think that we need to reverse it because I think the point that and you the, made and is the fundamentally question right. From, from just now, now. Um, the, your question is where have you gone? Um, uh, your question is, is equally uh, important. But the real issue here is that what we've got to do as a European Union is make sure that the countries around Europe are flourishing as well. Because the whole problem we've actually got, if we've got a, a total imbalance between continents in terms of economic power and, and opportunities. And so that would be the way I would uh, operate. I do not like the idea of camps. I think that's in totally uh, at variance with our interests as a, as a, as a liberal democracy. And I think we've got to find a way of stopping that happening. And I think that we've got to have a, a holistic policy for the European Union, which actually treats people much more carefully, much more considerately in terms of, of where they go if they do come here. But Neil, just to, if I could ask um, a, a follow-up, if, if I may. The lady referred to, as she sees it, people who are coming to, into Europe from, from Africa. Are you, are you saying, I know there are, are rules which suggest that uh, migrants or, uh, would, would stop at the first European country they, uh, they get to. That would put a whole lot of pressure on a whole lot of countries, whilst uh, others at the other side would be able to absent themselves from responsibility. I've long wondered why the European Union doesn't have a, a, a border strategy for the whole of the European Union, because I think that's the answer. But I repeat the point I've already made. It is, respond, it is our approach, which I think is helpful here, in, in connection with what happens in Africa. I think that's what we've got to think about. That's how, if you're going to focus on Africa, but I could pick up the Be anywhere, as I well. Just, uh, the lady um, I mentioned it as well. We want good governance and sensible economic policies and good opportunities. I, I took, um, it's a long story, so I won't have time to tell you the whole thing, but I took um, a party of parliamentarians from Myanmar to South Africa because I wanted the, an exchange of information on how they could improve education, how they could improve uh, the, their economies. And we're getting there. And it's that kind of approach, that kind of policy that will really make lasting and long-term differences. And I repeat, okay. it is about no, being no in the European repeat, Union. Fine. There's not enough time, but thank you anyway. Uh, for the Greens, can I ask uh, Catherine, please? Uh, yes. So, um, this goes uh, back to the, uh, the same issue about uh, support for the other countries. There's a naive assumption that sending foreign aid uh, is something that we shouldn't be doing because it's more important to keep the money at home. But it's very important um, 
uh, uh, to uh, support the countries from which these people are coming. But uh, more importantly, we are working on getting increased financial support within the EU uh, for integrating refugees. So we're in favour of uh, collaborative efforts to uh, rehome uh, refugees uh, across Europe, not have them uh, confined in camps in the south of Europe, which is already overstretched because of the austerity rules which have been so damaging to Greece and Italy. Uh, and we are also planning to introduce humanitarian visas uh, as a system for uh, um, helping with this kind of issue. But as I say, ultimately the problem is why the wars are there and why the refugees are finding it impossible to stay at home because most people would like to stay where they belong, if it, where their home is, where their families are, if they are not driven out by war, famine, and uh, the impossibility of maintaining their lives there. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Catherine. <laughs> Let's uh, turn our attention now to the economy, and the European economy is apparently forecast to continue expanding uh, for what's described as the seventh year in a row in 2019. But how does the European economic policy deal with both the US and with China. Let's uh, ask maybe Attila to start on uh, this one. How, how does a European economic policy deal with both the US and China? I'm here to represent a single issue that is not really being represented that much, so I need to pass on this one. Okay. And then, in which case, to Alvin. Move along to you. Uh, staying with... Uh, no, that one. <laughs> Hello. There we That's go. Right. Sorry. Thank you. Uh, staying within the EU means that we're part of the largest trading bloc in the whole entire world. Uh, we achieve more by working together, and actually, we have we're in a stronger negotiating position by working with the 27 countries than actually just negotiating on our own. This idea that somehow we'd be in a better negotiating position on our own with, against the USA sounds ludicrous to me. Um, Uh, many people have been saying quite little of that. Uh, so, uh, what I'm standing in terms of the economy, I mean, the reason I'm standing as a candidate is basically the Europe part of European Socialists and Labour Party are always keen to also improve workers' rights. So it's not just economy. How do we benefit from this incredible growth in the economy in, in Europe? Okay, so it's it's also making sure that we. Uh, tax multinational companies, therefore they actually contribute their fair share to the European economy to deal with vital issues such as, you know, climate change. It's also ensuring that we improve workers' rights and making sure that there's a minimum wage across the whole entirety of Europe. It's about making sure that, you know, everyone gets to, <laughs> everyone gets to uh, share in the proceeds of this growth in the European Union. Okay, thank you, Alvin. Uh, Lucy Nafsinger for the Lib Dems. Thank you. Um, so I think that the, the changes in the world economy that have happened in the last um, year or two are pretty substantial for all of us and, and really quite serious. Um, and, and they are another really major reason why it is so important that we remain part of the European Union. This is not a time for this country to go off and start trying to set up on its own. Um, there, the, the conflict between the US and China or the potential conflict is really quite worrying for all of us. And we need, as a European Union, to stick together 
I think the European Union has actually got a really good record um, on challenging multinational companies. They, um, the European Union is pretty much the only organisation which has been willing to take on the likes of Google um, to challenge some of their monopolistic tendencies. Um, and I think we really need to keep doing that and to keep standing up for a rules-based, law-based economic system, which is actually, in the, in the end, in the interest of all countries, but is not being supported by the other major blocs at the moment. So the, having the EU there, standing up for a legal system where, where everybody can take part is really critical. And we must remain part of the European Union and take our place in backing a system where everybody knows what the law is and abides by it, because that is not what's happening at the moment. Thank you, Lucy. Um, and Stuart Agnew from, uh, from UKIP. Neither China nor the US have a formal trading agreement with the European Union, yet both over the years have sold increasing numbers of, of items, of products, and that proves that you do not have to be in political union with other countries in order to sell them your wares. And, and that is demonstrated by these two countries. There is, however, some gross hypocrisy that goes on. As farmers, we are being, our hands are being tied behind our backs in the way that we can produce our crops. And this goes on in the Agri-Committee, from the Envy Committee, all the time. You can't use this, you can't use that. Meanwhile, the European Union happily imports meat and soya beans produced in other countries, produced by methods that we are not allowed to use, and they circulate in the European Union as though there was nothing wrong at all. I think this hypocrisy has to be addressed. We cannot farm with one hand but tied behind our backs whilst we compete with people who've got a sword in each hand. Thank you very much, uh, Stuart. Uh, for the Brexit party, Edmund, please. Not quite sure I understand the question, but of course the Brexit party stands for the independence of the United Kingdom and the freedom to strike our own uh, free trade agreements with uh, anybody we please, including the United States and including China, uh, including the European Union, uh, if they were so interested. Um, so um, that's the position of the Brexit party. Thank you, uh, Edmund, which uh, takes us uh, then across to Change UK and Neil. Neil Carmichael. Right, let's do a bit of fact-checking here. First of all, uh, Germany exports four times as much to China as we do. Is that anything to do with their membership of the European Union or our membership of the European Union? No, it's actually their productivity level. So what we've got to do is sharpen up our own performance, and that's one of the messages Change UK has. The second fact-check is it's not really about tariffs, it's about barriers. That's what everybody understands if they really know anything about trade. It's about barriers, not tariffs. And this argument's going on between China and, and the United States is the wrong argument to be having, and they'll both discover that. What we in the European Union need to do is emphasize the importance of a rules-based structure, as Lucy has pointed out, but also emphasize the, the power uh, of the single market, because that's where you deal with the barriers. If anyone ever saw a Triumph TR7, a fabulous car in my view, but they got nowhere in the United States because there was a rule introduced something to do with a petrol tank. That's a barrier. 
And that's what destroyed the TR7's uh, hopes and aspirations in the United States. So we've got to really understand that it's actually about that that matters. So why should we stay in the European Union? Precisely because we've got the leverage and the power to influence those things. If you want to trade, this is the place to do it within the European Union. And I'm going to give you two final facts. We actually export... Uh, a staggering amount uh, to uh, India, but we sell the same amount to the Netherlands. And the Netherlands is a good deal smaller than India. And the same ratio applies to China and to Germany. So we are, quite frankly, barking up the wrong tree if we decide that the best thing to do is leave the European Union. I remember the TR7. I always want to ask more about that, but let's uh, move to uh, Tom McLaren from the Conservatives instead. Thank you very much. Do you mind just repeating the question? Because yeah, I think we've sure. got lost a bit. The, uh, the, the question was that uh, in the European Union, or indeed out of it, how do we deal with both the trade policies of the United States and with China? I think that's an important clarification on uh, the question, in fact, because the the question should be, uh, what should the UK do? Because the Conservative Party policy is to take us out of the European Union. So what the European Union chooses to do about China and uh, the United States will be an interested bystander. We'll have a, a you know some kind of... Uh, uh, stake in the game in terms of uh, our cooperation with the European Union with a new trade agreement that will be negotiated going forwards. However, it will be for the European Union to negotiate that, not for the United Kingdom. Has, uh, has Dr Fox, Dr Neil Fox, who's uh, negotiating deals with people, has he managed to add uh, the United States or, or China to, the, to his list of deals so far? Liam, Liam Fox, Liam Fox. to do it in. Sorry, Liam Fox. Um, Liam Fox has been working extremely hard on his role. It's extremely, it's extremely, it's extremely difficult for him to sign any new trade agreements while we remain a member of the EU because that would actually be illegal in EU law. Um, the the fundamental premise of your question, I, I fully accept, which is that there are opportunities and threats in the world. The world is changing um, from a business and from an economic perspective in a way that it possibly last changed uh, during the Victorian period. We're seeing the growth of China as an international force. Um, that in itself, both in terms of uh, flexing its business muscle, but also flexing its military muscle. And we as a country have to choose how we respond to that. I've always been in favour of engagement. I'm fully uh, aware of the challenges that we uh, face in dealing with an autocratic regime like China. However, it is very important that we work extremely closely both with our American partners, but also with uh, new and uh, developing relationships in China and the developing world to create the best trade environment and open up the opportunities that that will bring for the United Kingdom. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Tom. And uh, finally, this section uh, for the Greens. Uh, Catherine Rowett, please. Yeah, so the question started with uh, a point about growth. And uh, the suggestion seems to be, and it's been dominant in our politics recently uh, for some years, that uh, you measure the success uh, of an operation, a country, a trade deal, or a, a whatever it is that you're measuring by whether it leads to a growth in GDP. Uh, and 
this uh, is uh, not actually the way that the European Union uh, was set up or should be operating, partly because of the climate change issue. There's an issue about whether pursuit of unbridled growth is uh, sustainable in any case. But also, one of the points of the uh, European Union was that we would ne not necessarily pursue profit at all costs, but that we would agree about workers' rights and about uh, provision for environmental protections and that kind of thing. So as a group, we agree on things that are not going to be competitively ad advantageous, but are beneficial on another standard of uh, measure of what is a good and prosperous society, one in which people can have weekends and go on holiday. And, and for that reason, uh, we are building into all future EU trade deals uh, because the Greens are in favour of this and because we are going to promote it. I think maybe we've already uh, achieved it, I'm not sure. Uh, that uh, workers' rights and environmental standards will be built into all new trade agreements because it's absolutely vital that we stop counting growth and start counting environmental protection as the measure of what we're actually achieving that we can be proud of. Thank you very much, uh, Catherine. So we'll do some uh, questions on the economy or finance if we want to. We should probably allow Paul, as uh, from Cambridge Days, who's uh, one of the organisers here uh, tonight, to take the first question on this. I'll have a question, but first, actually, a point of order. I think I heard a quote just earlier uh, from another audience member about 38 billion being spent on refugee camps by the EU. I have no idea where that figure came from. I couldn't find it anywhere. I think it's utter nonsense, probably, but I'd, I'd like to be disproved. Or, or, but it's, it seems very, very unlikely to me, and an example of the kind of fake news that we're used to dealing with in this process. Um, my question is actually, what is, is it about the, the EU that makes so many of the worst examples of vulture capitalism and climate change denying industries and companies which want to ensure that they can minimize their tax um, uh, payments by offshoring them here and there and moving them around so that they don't actually have to declare them in any particular country. Um, what makes them so keen to undermine the EU? Edmund, would you like to have a go at that one to start off with? You'll have to ask them. Short and sweet. Uh, Stuart? I, quite, I just want to say something about Ireland, if you don't mind. I mean, I agree no, with I the proof. The question was, well, was connected I, I, with Ireland. <laughs> Ireland has a corporation tax rate which is very low. The European Commission do not like that because it, they th feel it's giving Ireland an unfair advantage. Ireland is attracting investment and companies setting up there. So the EU is starting to wave the big stick at Ireland and saying, oi, if you don't raise your corporation tax rates, you might find us making life difficult you vis-a-vis -vis Brexit. And that is going on at the moment. Yeah, that's why 85% of people in Ireland support being in the EU. <laughs> I saw uh, Neil itching to uh, answer this one. So, uh, Neil, would you like to, uh, to, to have, a, have a look at this? I think it's a really good question. I think that one of the next phases of the European Union has to be uh, uh, more... Uh, 
attention to the, the movement of capital, the movement and avoidance of tax. I think that's the way we can really help here. I think the European Union has a real power there if it wants to use it. I think the problem is, and it's you've sort of alluded to it, that everybody kind of blames the European Union uh, without actually recognising that it doesn't always have the capacity and power because the politicians in charge of the domestic states don't actually give it those powers. But this gives me an opportunity just to correct something which I heard before, which the European Union has not reformed. And I'm just going to tell you three things where it really has reformed. One, agriculture. Twenty odd years ago, you had hedge payments and wine lakes and butter mountains. Today, the CAP is completely devoted towards uh, protecting the environment. That's a reform. Two, the introduction of the single market. That has to be one of the biggest reforms ever implemented, and it involved the changing of decision-making structures across Europe, and it delivered a free and fair economy. And three, and this is the thing I find so surprising to tonight, is we've got one member of the European Parliament who does not appear to realise that it was created during the lifetime of the European Union, and also its powers were extended, and also it became elected. Now, they are reforms. And just remember this, the European Union can actually eject the entire Commission, which it has done so once already with spectacular success. So that is a powerful reform which we should be noting and which we should be deploying. Thank you, Neil. And Lucy now for the Lib Dems. Lucy Nefsinger. Thank you. I, th I also think it's a really interesting question. And um, th for me, the question was, why are so many uh, venture capitalists, big monopolistic country, um, companies, so against the EU? And I think part of the question, uh, part of the answer, is that actually, um, when you've got quite a dispersed power structure and lots and lots of countries, it's quite difficult to, for for. Um, for big business and big money to have the same kind of influence on political structures that it does in, other, in this country and in many individual countries. There are a huge number of people that you have to try and take out for dinner, um, wine and dine, all that kind of stuff. I, I have been, since becoming the leader on the County Council, I have been appalled at the the influence of money in British politics. Um, I grew up naively thinking that we had a relatively uncorrupt political system, and my goodness, I've grown up. Um, it is not uncorrupt, and the influence of big money on our political system is pretty horrendous. I think when you're trying to deal with such a large number of countries with lots and lots of governments, lots and lots of ministers, it's much harder to do that slightly corrupting influence. And while there are many, many things we may criticise the European Union for, I do think that actually Actually, it is a very rules-based system, and while we don't always succeed in maintaining those rules, it is much harder for um, big companies and venture capitalists to actually get down and write the rules. Um, so I think that's one of the answers, and I think it's something that we should be profoundly grateful for for the EU. Thank you very much, Lucy. I'll take another question in a moment before we move on. And normally with these things, you kind of expect disputes within the panel. We might have one within the audience. Now... Paul mentioned a fact he disagreed with the lady before. The lady before, um, who I'd really should ask your name, Adam. Syra. Syra. So the fact you're, you're challenging, I guess, Paul's yeah, uh, answer to your facts, just, sure, to, just sure. for the record, quickly. Uh, yeah, uh, I think democratic debate uh, falls down when people start throwing fake news at people when they make a contribution. So my source is The Independent. The title of... Uh, the article is the EU plans to triple spending on border controls in response to, bear with me, <laughs> uh, 
uh, money will be spent in response to the refugee crisis. And the uh, articles by John Stone, Wednesday the 13th of June 2018, and I'm assuming he's a Brussels correspondent. Oh, all I can say... <laughs> <laughs> Did it mention 38 million? Yeah, Brilliant. Billion, which includes the reserve, yes. Yeah. So just look it up. Uh, million and I'm million. happy to email it with you. Billion. Okay. Well, I urge people to have a look at that, and maybe as a, as a good journalist, I would recommend they check with the second or third source. Um, can we take the gentleman there in the, uh, the fourth row, the microphone to him, please? Yeah, there we go. Thank you, sir. Uh, thanks, Sarah, for that. I, I wasn't going to dispute the figures, but I don't know, you probably joined Spiked or whatever and, and weirdly supporting uh, Brexit Party, but we won't go into that right now. Anyway, um, I was going to mention uh, uh, the, like the, both China and EU are, sub uh, well, the, I think they're both uh, China and the EU are subordinates of the US because we live in an international capitalist system. So I, I think that's why we have a global hierarchy of states. But I think the, the alternative is with a strong working class within the EU and a radical socialist united Europe would inspire the US working class and international working class and, and that would be better able to challenge US uh, hegemonic power. That's I think, and it's, and it's a strategic, uh, like no, 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 yeah, of course, and it's a, a strategy. I think all well, these things are complicated and Sarah's right to say that these, are, these should be more debates. I think, you know, I disagree with Sarah on things, but she, she's correct to mention there should be more debates. Yeah, I'm coming to that. <laughs> it, these are more complicated, I think it's a strategy and I just want to ask all the candidates what they think about that strategy because at the moment, I will vote critically Labour because I think we need a stronger left at the moment, but strategically it needs to, be, needs to become stronger in a united right, socialist the, Europe. The strategy yeah. in which direction, which particular... For the left, a stronger left, yeah. And, you know, I'm in the Labour Party, and we have disagreements in the Labour Party all the time, and that's healthy, and that's how it should be. Okay, thanks. Alvin, uh, uh, could I ask you to maybe uh, a brief comment on that? If the Labour Party is, uh, wins well in European elections, the Party of European Socialists becomes the largest party bloc within the European Union. Um, we'll, at the moment, we've had decades of basically um, the, the centre of right take being, being in control of the EU. So just thinking about what the dramatic change, like there'll be a left-wing change if the left do well uh, in these European, European elections. And as I said, we've, we, the Labour Party's got a manifesto, Party of European Socialists has a manifesto, and we've been quite clear about you know, expanding workers' rights and all, of these, all these other issues. So yes, uh, I am a democratic socialist. I believe that we can achieve changes for the left uh, in a democratic way, and, that, and despite what other parties may say, I think that the EU is a democratic organisation that will enable us to do that. Thank you very, uh, thank you very much. I to be clear, so you, you would sit, because I've, I've got my little map here of where everybody is, so you would sit... Uh, presumably with the Socialists and, uh, and Democrats. Yeah, uh, nice well, I suspect if our friend over here was elected, he might go for the, for the left group, which is uh, a, a, separate, a separate section. Okay, right. Uh, let's see if there's uh, a couple more questions on here. There's a, a gentleman right over that side, if we can uh, get a microphone to him. And we'll... Yeah, there's a need to wait for the microphone to come across and then there's a lady sitting over here who we can take afterwards I but you sir i have got a quick question at the end but i'd like to come back on uh neil about um the uh the economics in the eu 
Because um, I mean, one thing that's rarely discussed in this country is the EMU and the distorting impact of the EMU on the whole of the economy of Europe. Yes, Germany did very well out of it because effectively its currency was devalued, so it was able to increase exports, etc., etc., improve its productivity. The flip side of it was the countries of southern Europe, particularly ended up being Greece and to lesser extent Italy, um, who were in a position where they could actually borrow more because they're in the EU, the overborrowed suffered, and that's actually ended up in quite severe austerity, far worse than here, including actually, you know, mortality rates going up, etc., and stuff like, like that. But my, my point is, A, people need to be aware of the effect of the EMU historically and economically. It's an important thing. It's not just a straight, it's a great thing to be in it. But my main point, I guess, that comes out of that would, would be, would the panel, uh, what is their policy on, say, joining the euro? Do they have a long-term aim to join the euro or not? Okay, I'll, um, thank you very much. So I'll start with Neil on that question. Dave, if you're going to answer the first point and then, and then move on to the gentleman's more general question. If I had a everybody... You told me that the, the euro uh, was going to collapse any time soon. I think I would uh, be really a very rich person and be able to buy out the euro. Uh, it is not going to collapse. It is going to remain uh, a, a currency. We are uh, not in it and we have the opt-out of it. The first point is if we leave the European Union then try to join, uh, we'll end up being part of the uh, single Europe, single uh, currency by default. That's not an ideal situation for us. Uh, this, the point uh, we've always got to understand is how bad was the situation before the euro started. That's when debt was piling up. That's when devaluation was used, competitive devaluation, that is not a good way of running an economy. The best idea is to have a hard currency so that you actually do get the structural reforms that are necessary to bring about results which are satisfactory or better. And in Spain and in Greece that has happened. If you look at those two economies you can see the economy in Greece has actually started to uh, implement those structural reforms and in Spain the situation is much better still. And that is good news. It's not good Good news that we've still got a lot of youth unemployment in those countries and in some others, but it is good news that the Spanish economy has really thrived. Remember actually where Spain came from. General Franco died in 1975. He was handing out free beer to keep the people happy and there was actually starvation in parts of Spain as early as the 1980s. Now that does not happen now at all in Spain. It's a terrific achievement that that has uh, been the consequence uh, of, the, of the European Union and of the Euro. If you look at Poland, think of what Poland was Sorry, actually Neil, like in um, the 1980s. Spain, Spain was good and, and Poland would have been too. Um, Lucy, can I ask uh, you to, uh, to, to pick up on this one please? I'll carry on from where Neil left off because I think that was an excellent um, direction of travel. I think that the, the point that Neil is making is that, um, or was making, was that we really have a fantastic deal with the UN, with the EU at the moment. Sorry for the slip of the tongue. Yes, that as well. Um, the, our deal with the European Union at the moment um, is better than any other European country has. We have um, a deal which suits our economy superbly. Um, and we should hang on to that because we will never get it back if we leave. To go back to the issue about um, the, the impact of the, European, of the euro on the European Union, I think that probably if you were to go back in time, all sorts of people would say, yes, we should have done this differently and yes, we should have done that differently. But Neil is right. The impact has been um, 
while it's difficult, to, to bring stability at a time which could have been catastrophic. And I know this from my family, um, Greek connections. Um, what could have happened to Greece had they not been part of the euro could have been so much worse. Um, so, yes, the euro has its problems, but actually they, that there has been stability that has been brought right across Europe um, by that business of sticking together, supporting each other. We need to do it more, but it's much, much better than it would be if we were not part of that union. Um, to go back to your original question about whether we should join the euro now, I think probably not, um, but, but, uh, but I would hope that we would one day. Thank you, Lucy. Um, and finally, on this particular question, Edmund, Edmund Fordham from Brexit Party. Thank you. Um, does the Brexit Party have a policy to join the Euro? Absolutely no way. <laughs> um, no surprise there, <laughs> so no surprise there. Um, I do agree, however, with what the questioner said about the uh, effect of the Euro on some of the southern European economies, particularly Greece. I followed the whole of the Greek debt crisis whilst it was going on, and I think that the way that Greece was treated by the European Union um, is absolutely atrocious and it has indeed led to exactly what you said, severe austerity reflected in real shortening of real people's lives. Um, it's a very bad effect and of course it comes from the fact that they had external debt, sovereign debt, denominated in a currency that they did not control. Thank you very much, uh, Edmund. I promised the lady down the front their question. We'll take her next. Also, we'll do a couple of other questions as well before we finish. We'll, if you want to broaden it out from... Uh, uh, the economy, then I'll allow you to do so. But uh, uh, the lady who, by the looks of things, could be supporting the Greens. <laughs> um, everybody, uh, most people at, at the table have talked about growth, and I get the impression that you think that growth is something that we need um, for our economy. So, in terms of one planet living, if you were elected as an MEP, how would your party begin to work towards reducing growth and consumerism in the population? And what sort of growth would you think was a positive type of growth, a sustainable growth? Um, you know, I mean, the example I could give is the New Green Deal. I haven't heard any of you mention that so far. So, but the most important thing to me is when is your party going to begin to work towards uh, reducing growth and consumerism? Tom McLaren. Thanks very much. Um, it's a it's a difficult question um, in a number of uh, in a number of ways. But let me uh, set it out like this. In the context of uh, economic development and in lifting people out of poverty throughout uh, the world, the most successful system that we have developed so far has been the capitalist system. Now, we can um, focus on particular areas which are of concern in terms of uh, consumerism and uh, avataristic behavior. I certainly, certainly support that. But in terms of um, distribution of wealth within this country and bringing up the overall standard of living, you know, firstly, I'd say we've, you know, despite all of the challenges that we face at the moment, we've really never had it so good as we do in this country. Um, and, well, you, you, may, you may disagree. You may disagree. But if you look back at, through history, life, any, any, any objective measure, life expectancy, average incomes, the, the, stand, the standard... 
Exactly. You can, you can argue about food banks, but the, the vast majority of people in this country are in a better condition than they would have been. Go back through history, look even back to the Victorian times earlier than that. The, even back to the 1940s, it's very clear that the standard of living that we have this day, these days, is much better than it was at any point previously in history. Now, that has been driven by the society and the system that we operate in this country, which is a capitalist consumer society. Now, I totally accept the point around some of the aspects of that and uh, the idea of this disposable fashion, for example, which is just atrocious in my opinion. Um, the idea that you need to upgrade your mobile phone every 12 months or 24 months. No, thank you very much. Cars that are built on cycles where you need to upgrade your car every so often to get the new features when in reality they could probably put most of those features in today. These are all extreme uh, challenges for this country and we need to be looking at investing in long-term uh, sustainable development in all of those areas, in all of the areas of the economy. But overall, I think we can be thankful for the situation that we're in today and look forward with optimism and hope for the future. Thank you. And uh, also, I'd like to hear from Alvin on this, please, as well, for Labour. Um, I think the problem at the moment in terms of Western capitalism is basically, it's basically purely on consumption. Uh, it's consumerism. It's we, uh, I, we buy goods from China, bring it over from China, buy it, purchase it, and then we throw it away and export it back to China. And that is, frankly, not sustainable. Uh, in terms of just not just only in terms of goods, but also food uh, food production, we're going to have to move away from that, um, and we have to acknowledge that at some point we're going to have to make some sacrifices. About we can't just consume whatever we want uh, whenever we feel like it. Uh, so we do need to acknowledge that, and we need to encourage people like you and myself to basically use less. Uh, use less. Um, I wouldn't say that all growth is parable. Uh, we are a service economy in this country. Uh, a lot of our, we uh, provide lots of financial services. We like provide um, social services, all these, diff all these um, different services that we provide to uh, people here and across the entire world. Um, we can still grow, still grow, um, but it will be managed growth. Thank you, Alvin. And I'll, yeah, quickly, Lucy, and then um, Ben Attila. So I think that there is a, a real division between consumerism and growth. And I think we would all agree that um, we all need to have less stuff. Um, I would love my house to have less stuff. Uh, it would be... Um, but there is a huge difference between that and growth in... Um, I, I would like to see much more insulation of houses. Growth in the sector of insulating houses, a thoroughly good thing. I would actually really, really like to see more education, more spending on education, more people able to... Um, spend, spend longer learning things, learn things throughout their lives, be able to um, afford to be able to take some time out later in life in order to go and learn new skills. Um, I think there are areas of growth and areas um, where it can be incredibly positive. And I wouldn't want us to, to be saying we have to stop our economy um, in order to make it sustainable. We have to try and work out how to have a sustainable economy, and that does mean growth, but it means the right kind of growth. Thank you, Lucy. And uh, Attila, our independent candidate. So somebody mentioned life expectancy, so I'm, I'm not sure whether you know that in the UK, life expectancy actually not just stopped, but dropped in the last couple of years. The only out of the EU countries. So the type of personal growth I'm talking about is that 
you should be able to normally function till the end of your life. And there's this approach, uh, Catherine might have heard about a theoretical one, to replace GDP-based growth measures with capabilities. So you have the capabilities, it's Martin Nussbaum. And the first one of those fundamental capabilities that we should be able to provide on this wish list would be to live healthily till the end of your life, reasonably. And this is not given these, these days, but the science is there to enable this, but the politics is not backing it. So that's the personal growth I'm talking about. So you can do all your stuff while you're 80 as well. And uh, Catherine, I see you wanted to come in, but very quickly. Um, yes, uh, so the Green New Deal was mentioned, and obviously that is a, a Green Party policy and was promoted by us uh, a long time ago and is uh, one of our EU policies. Uh, that doesn't mean uh, growth in every uh, aspect, but transferring our um, economy towards uh, green jobs rather than uh, the kind of jobs that uh, we have had in the past. But one thing to bear in mind is that all the uh, appearance of uh, wonderful um, conditions that we live under in this country is premised upon the fact that we have hidden out of sight workers who are being exploited and resources that are being exploited in faraway countries where they don't have much life expectancy and they don't have... Uh, anything to look forward to or enjoy. So we are in fact a slave society uh, in, in a way that we can't see because we keep the wealth here and uh, deprive others of it. Uh, I am uh, an expert in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there was no growth and no capitalism, but some of the best achievements, the most wonderful art, the most wonderful philosophy, and the most wonderful uh, intellectual pursuits. It's perfectly possible to have those things on a finite planet, and we don't need to be digging up coal in order to do it. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Catherine. Now, we have a... A small amount of time uh, left. I want to try and keep answers and questions short. So, uh, there is a gentleman there. Yes, you're still there. A gentleman in the blue shirt next to one of the pillars, which is possibly uh, quite, quite challenging if we get a microphone to you, but we will do it. Uh, Sir. Hi. Uh, I've got sort of two questions, but I'll ask one. Just one, please. <laughs> Just mind, one. Um, uh, we're either going to leave the EU or we're going to remain in the EU. How would the candidates bring the country together, whichever uh, situation we get into? Very quick answers, if we don't mind. I'll start, uh, if I'll go down the line on this one, but uh, 30 seconds only, I'm afraid. Um, how will you bring the country together? Stuart Agnew, UKIP. Try and forget the past divisions. It isn't easy, I'm well aware of that. We had a civil war in this country about 400 years ago. And it, the, the wounds lasted a long time. There isn't an easy solution. What I like to think is that we will all get behind our sporting teams. That certainly helps. I look at, I look at Ireland, a divided country. The North and the South now play rugby together. They play cricket together. And I... Yeah. But it, you know, it's a good question. And scars take time to heal. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Uh, Lucy uh, Nefsinger for the Lib Dems. 
Thank you. Um, one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we stop this Brexit mess now is that there are so many issues that need dealing with in this country and we are not going to be able to deal with them while we continue to have this endless uncertainty about our economic future. Um, actually, we need to get back to dealing with um, education, with our hospitals, with our roads, and it is by dealing with those issues that we will bring the country back together. Um, whatever happens um, in terms of leaving or remaining, there is going to be a proportion of the population which is furious about it. Um, and we have to recognise that that's going to be the case whichever way this goes. Um, but in order to bring people together, we have to deal with the rest of our politics um, and we have to bring communities back together. And that is one of the things that Brexit has been appalling for. It has driven communities apart. It's driven families apart. We have to stop it. Thank, Thank you, you, Lucy. Uh, Alvin Chum for Labour. I think a large reason, part of the reason why people voted for Brexit is basically because they felt ignored and left behind by the political establishment. Um, frankly, a lot of that's to do with the fact that we had austerity for the last nine years. Um, so for me, um, I would want a Labour government and I want to have investments in our services and our public and, and, our, and our communities. Only by actually investing and having civic pride in, in our country can we actually achieve bringing back the country together. Thank you, Alvin. Attila? Yes, so trying to prioritize healthy longevity as a top political goal is something that's going to unite us. It's something that is going to be working for current generations and even more so for further generations. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Catherine for the Greens. We don't say bollocks to anybody. Oh, sorry. <coughs> Uh, we don't say bollocks to anybody. Uh, there were very important reasons why people voted to leave, and we are going around and listening to what people have to say and the reasons why they uh, were wanting to leave. Uh, as Alvin says, uh, austerity and being left behind and the inequalities of wealth, these are the things that we are going uh, to address that... Uh, it's, it's to do with um, the uh, power of the austerity program and of the super rich. And uh, we need to uh, address the causes of Brexit uh, and not just tell them that they were all stupid. I have many, many levers in my uh, uh, part of the woods that I've been visiting. Thank you, Catherine. And uh, we are going to listen to them. Thank you. Um, Tom McClam for the Conservatives. Thank you very much. I think this is uh, quite possibly uh, one of the most important questions that we face this evening. Um, the, uh, you know, a fanciful answer would be to ban social media, um, stop people ranting at each other on Facebook and Twitter. That would probably be a good start. And I think everybody in this room, if they could take one thing away from this, would maybe be a pledge to stop ranting at people on social media because it's not good for anybody's mental health, let alone your own. Um, Beyond that, I think the, uh, one of, some of the points that have been picked up here are, are very good ones that I would totally support. I think um, trying to generate a sense of pride in our country, um, that would be uh, extremely important, something, you know, a, a sense of something that we can all get behind. Um, reaching out and making sure that we're engaging, making sure that communities that feel that they're left behind no longer feel like that. A lot of communities, particularly up north, um, feel that all of the investment happens in the southeast and uh, that uh, the UK doesn't work for them. So things like, for example, re-examining how HS2 works, uh, potentially looking to can it in the south and, you, and do the investment in the north. Those types of uh, significant infrastructure um, projects that bring the whole country together. Thank you. And to Neil, please. 
We need leadership with courage and vision to deal with the issues that we actually got uh, in our country. That's the real answer. And they need to be uh, people who actually understand what those problems are. The gross regional disparity we have between what the poorest and the richest region. The fact that we have communities stuffed full of people who are badly educated with no aspiration and no hope. Those are the things that we need to actually deal with because that's how we actually raise the game. By pointing out what can be done, not what can't be done. What really is a, kind, a, a description of a country that we feel comfortable with but making sure everybody else feels com comfortable in that country and it's about freedom of thinking it's about freedom of attitude and it's about above all understanding that the individual wherever he or she happens to be actually matters actually counts and deserves a fair slice of whatever economic cake that we have and I think that is the vision that we need to articulate in the future because it's about having an education system first and foremost in my Thank view you, Neil. which equips the people to do that. Thank you very much indeed um, and finally on this one of the Brexit party Edmund Fordham. By celebrating the operation of the democratic principle I think that the uh, ballot box, um, although some people seem to be sniggering about that, is one of the uh, most important contributions to uh, civilization. It is the way that um, inevitable differences between interest groups and society are settled, where the mechanism by which you have peaceful redress uh, of grievances. Um, and the Brexit genie, I'm afraid, is completely out of the bottle already. Um, we've had the very clear result in the referendum. And uh, really, uh, I think if you think that's going to go away, um, then uh, that is completely wrong. Um, and I'd include in that celebration those Remainers, who, whom, many of whom I have met, who say, well, they now think that uh, they would vote leave um, simply because they hold that the uh, democratic result must stand and must be upheld. Thank you very much, uh, Edmund. Now, the, the organisation which, of course, has put this on is Cambridge Stays, but we do have to go eventually. So um, I'd better make one last question. The lady in the centre there. Yes, you, ma'am. Yes. Uh, get the microphone to her if we can. Last questions. I'm, I'm optimistic it's going to be a good one. <coughs> no pressure. Um, I'm a little bit torn what I was going to ask, but um, I'm, I'm just going to ask um, the Brexit party, is he happy having ex-revolutionary communist parties as candidates who um, support the IRA and have, are on record supporting child abusers? Well, I guess two parts uh, to that. Um, do you have such members? And if you do, are, are you happy with their views today? I think if you're talking about Claire Fox, she's issued her own um, personal statement on whether, whatever she may or may not have said uh, about the IRA. If you mean, am I um, happy to have somebody in the par party who is on the uh, left wing of politics, then actually you'll find that that's one of the features of the Brexit party. There's a wide spectrum of former uh, political allegiances from left to right, as well as a wide spectrum of candidates, um, most of whom have not been uh, professional politicians and have come from all walks of life.
Thank you, Edmund. Uh, we do have to bring things to a close, I'm afraid. Hopefully, you might be able to grab one of your uh, candidates if you want to ask them a question directly uh, once we've wound things up. Uh, do stay in your seats, if you don't mind, just in case our engineering team... No, we're, we're good. This is good. So let me thank our candidates. Edmund Fordham for the Brexit Party, Neil Carmichael for Change UK, Tom McLaren for the Conservatives, Catherine Rowett for the Greens, Attila Sordas from our independent candidate, Alvin Chum from Labour, Lucy Neff Singer from the Lib Dems, and Stuart Agnew from UKIP. Thank you very much to all of you for attending. Let me hand over to Paul, who may have a couple of brief words to uh, wind things up for you with. Okay, um, well, thank you all very much for coming. Um, I think we've hopefully all learned something. Um, I know I did, um, because I hadn't actually realised before that the figure of 35 billion being spent over the EU over six years, um, which was in that independent article, which it did track down. The only quibble I'd have with that is, is actually on the whole immigration agency rather than just on camps in North Africa. So I think we do need to be very careful when we're assigning um, money and facts to actually to be specific about what it's about. Um, but I think there's a general, more broader note there is actually how the, certainly in the immigration debate, we see how the right is pulling the U, the the EU towards the right, and then we, that has been weaponized against the EU here in the UK. We have to, my view as Cambridge stays, our part in the battle against the right, against the rise of populism in Europe is to be fought here in the UK, and that is to stop Brexit and stay in the EU. So, so polemic aside, um, I'd like to uh, thank our candidates here for coming tonight. And I'd like to thank also our great moderator, Julian. I think he did a fantastic job, so a round of applause. And I'd like to thank Great St. Mary's for having us here tonight. And, and for all their help during this, getting it all set up. And uh, finally, I would like to thank all of you here for coming tonight and staying till... Ooh, a quarter past eight now. Um, <laughs> most of you are still here. Um, thank you very much for coming. And if you want to collect any leaflets or anything on the way out, on the desks on the way out, please do so. Thank you. Cambridge 105 Radio.